0: If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John, John chapter 20. Gonna get a little jump on Easter. Verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So that they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb. And he stopped, stooping down, looked in, and saw the linen clothes lying there. Yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief or the, the napkin is what the King James version says that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place all by itself. I want you to remember that final phrase, how when Simon Peter finally made it inside of the tomb, they saw the linen or the grave clothes laying in one place. And then the napkin That was wrapped around Jesus's head was not with the grave clothes, but was separately uh, neatly folded is what the scripture says put in a place. And I want you to remember that because there's a message in that um, as we wrap up our time together behind me is a living uh, uh, replica of Leonardo da Vinci painting of the Last Supper. And just a fun fact, this is very close to the actual size of the first painting that da Vinci placed inside of that convent in Santa Maria. So this is very close. It's actually three feet shorter than the actual painting. So this was a massive painting. And Leonardo da Vinci was commissioned by the government to paint this uh, a mural in the dining hall of this convent. He was going through all the different ideas that he had, uh, different things that he desired to paint. And he finally settled on the last supper and not just any moment during the last supper, but he specifically was trying to capture the moment where Jesus stunned all of his disciples, shocked them when he said, one of you will betray me immediately the disciples are in an uproar, wondering who it is that's going to betray their Lord. And they begin to ask one after another, Lord, is it I, Lord, is it I, Lord, is it I? And Leonardo da Vinci wanted to capture that moment. He wanted to, to capture that moment of, of shock and emotion. And I believe he did an incredible job Remember, this is also just hours before Jesus is going to be arrested hours before he'll stand trial, ultimately be savagely tortured and die by crucifixion. So the emotion that Jesus even has in this moment, knowing this is his last supper is significant. So what I thought we should do before we wrap up the message in just a minute is maybe get to know some of these men that Jesus chose. The Bible says he chose 12 out of the millions of people he could have chose. These were the men that he chose that would lay the foundation, ultimately be the pillars to preach the gospel into the whole world. Everything that we're about was built on the foundation of these 12, really 11 faithful men. And so let's get to know them real quick. The very first apostle that Jesus would choose would be Andrew. Andrew was Jesus's very first choice. And I love Andrew because when you think about him, he's not a great preacher. He's not, uh, he doesn't have any standout talents or gifts. When you think about Andrew, the one notable thing about him is he was always bringing an individual to Jesus Christ. He was a, a great introducer, if you will. Andrew seemed to be able to value the one, the individual. He, he did more than think about the, the masses or the crowds. He really cared about the individual. It was Andrew that would introduce his brother, the famous Simon Peter, to Jesus. He wasn't only the first apostle that would be called, he was also the very first soul winner, the first man to ever win a soul one-on-one was Andrew. Andrew was the man that discovered the young boy. When Jesus was asking, do we have any food for the 5,000 people plus women and children? It was Andrew who found the little boy with his lunchbox and brought that little boy to Jesus. And of course, Jesus takes that little boy's lunchbox and and multiplies it and feeds thousands of people. It was Andrew who allowed this young child on his way to school to be a part of a miracle that would bless and feed thousands and thousands of people. Andrew was also the very first one when the Greeks, in this last week of Jesus' life, when the Greeks came and wanted to meet Jesus. It was Andrew who introduced the Greeks to Jesus. Speaking of the fact that he was beginning that this is not a gospel just for the Jews or just for Israel, but the gospel is for every nationality. And I think that what's wonderful about Andrew is he could always see the importance of the one and the individual. The next person that we have is James. James is called the the son of Zebedee. James is Interesting because the quality in James that stood out was that he was a quiet man. When you would think of somebody that God would choose to carry the gospel into the whole world, you would think of somebody that's maybe charismatic, somebody that's the life of the party, somebody that that you know is boisterous, somebody that just always kind of a standout person and has that you know that that bubbling personality. But that's not. James. James is an incredibly quiet individual. He's, he's silent, but when he did talk, he meant what he said. For example, Jesus was in a village and they weren't very hospitable to him or the apostles. And so it was James that says to Jesus, Hey, can we call down fire from heaven on this village? When, when somebody mistreated Jesus, Jesus, James was the guy that's like, Hey, let's go nuclear on them. Let's, let's just destroy these people. So James is silent, but he is without question passionate. And because of his desire to call down fire, he, it earned him the nickname, a son of thunder. He was quiet. Most of the time he was, he was kind of, you know, a little withdrawn most of the time, but when he did speak, he meant what he said. He would be a rock to Jesus. He would be the one that Jesus would depend on, the man that was always behind the scenes making things happen, holding Jesus' arms up. James would be the one that would be invited into Jairus' house when Jesus would do the miracle. For Jairus' daughter in raising her from the dead. Everyone else was pushed out of the house. Everyone else that was wrapped up in emotion, mourning and weeping and crying. The mockers, the doubters, they were all pushed out. But James was the one. Jesus said, I need you in this room with me as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So though he was a silent man, he was strong and standing beside Jesus no matter what. Next, we have Matthew. Matthew is, is one of the apostles that stands out because before he met Jesus, he was a publican. He was a tax collector. He was somebody that had wrongly taxed people. He would heavily tax people. He, would, he was an oppressor of people. Kind of look at him as like, kind of like the mafia person. He would go and rob and steal and threaten to people people. If they didn't give him what he wanted. And so when you think about Matthew, he was self-centered. He was egotistical. He was a man that lived for pleasure. Money was his God. So it's interesting when Jesus called him, he not only, he not only answered the call, but he left his worldly possessions. He left the life that he was living He actually would say of himself, you cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. It was Matthew who was basically saying, hey, before I met Jesus, money, stuff, things were my God. It wasn't that he was saying things are bad or money is bad. It's it's not, do you have stuff? It's does your stuff have you? And Matthew was the one who brought attention to that. Hey, listen, our stuff should not own us. Things should not own us. We should make sure that God owns us our hearts and that we don't allow things to control us. He would also walk away from his possessions. When Jesus said, follow me, he would walk away from all the wealth that he had amassed and he would even sell many of his possessions and begin to pay back money that he had stole from people his whole life. I love the fact that, that Matthew was also a great soul winner. He used his past to go minister to the people that were in his circle of influence. He went and found his publican tax collecting friends and invited them to a party, a banquet before. Whenever Matthew invited them to this banquet, it would be this wild party filled with all the imaginable pleasures. But this time, instead of pleasure stepping out from behind the curtain of the party that he was throwing, Jesus stepped out from behind the curtain and Matthew used his influence to give Jesus a platform to speak into the life of his friends. And after Jesus spoke to that party of people at that banquet, they all gave their life to Jesus Christ. And that was because of the math, the the influence of Matthew. It was Matthew who would say things like it's easier for a Camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, just speaking of the idea that over time, if you are not careful, you'll place your dependence in things. You'll place your dependence in in your possessions. You'll depend on on money. And Matthew says, "Listen, that's what gets makes it so difficult for people that God has has blessed in many ways in in the natural is they depend too much on those things. They don't think they have a need." for God. So Matthew beat the battle against greed. He beat the battle against those things and he gave it all up to serve Jesus Christ. And he's an example to us in that. The next that we have is Philip. Philip is the one that would be considered the plotter is his nickname. Philip, the plotter. Speaking of the fact that he's like this, this, this Stats person. He he wants the, the, the facts. He's sort of robotic, non-emotional, a machine. And I love the fact that when God chose someone to call, to call to serve him, he wasn't afraid of finding this reasoning person, this, this fact-oriented individual. Philip would be sometimes a little behind the rest of the apostles and understanding what was going on. He was a little slow to the punch. He's kind of like the guy that, that, even though it was going on, he would be in the background trying to really make sure he understood completely what was going on. One place he looks at Jesus and he says, "Jesus, show us the Father." And Jesus says to him, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What, it, what, what are you not catching here, Philip? You're watching me walk on water. You're watching me raise the dead. You're watching me do all these miracles. You're hearing all of these messages. How is it that you haven't caught yet who I am?" But he didn't seem to understand. When they brought that little boy's lunchbox that we mentioned a minute ago to Jesus, it was Philip who would say, Hey, there's too little to feed the multitude. Still not understanding. And just moments before that, there was a miracle where he watched Jesus feed 4,000. But now, just moments later, just a few days later, he's not, he's still too slow to know when Jesus takes little, he can multiply it and do much with it. And so when you think of, of, Philip. The Bible says, even though he was, was this machine kind of robotic, not emotional, he wouldn't be the person in a church service to be lifting his hands and shouting. He wouldn't be the person to, you know, be the one in front of people, but yet he was someone that Jesus chose. He was kind of like the people who set this up today. He was the one that would set the table for Jesus. The Bible says he was the one that would make sure that the all the things that they needed to travel to the next city where they would have another miracle crusade, he would be the one that made sure all the right things were packed up. He was the one that would make sure they had enough food for the journey. That's Philip. People that were behind the scenes in Jesus' time were so important, and they're so important in our day as well. People that don't need the spotlight, but people are willing to do whatever is necessary to build the kingdom. Of God. Next, we have Thomas. You know, Thomas is famous for the moment of doubt after the resurrection, and they The Mary's run to the apostles. They're locked behind this door in fear, afraid that the same people that killed Jesus is going to find them and kill them. And they run into the room and they say that Jesus has risen. And it's Thomas who says, I'll only believe if I can touch the nail scars in his hands and the wound in his side. We label him a doubter. We look at Thomas and we think, you know what, what, what defines him is these moments of unbelief. But I love Thomas. I actually relate to Thomas more than all the other apostles. I think I relate to him because I'm someone that I question things. I'm someone that I, I, I just, I, I have my doubts at times. You might be here saying, well, you're the preacher. How do you have doubts? I'm someone that understands that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what I find happening in the life of so many believers is they've not developed their faith. When it comes to the intellectual side of things, the gospel is not some blind thing that you follow. Faith is not some blind thing that you follow. You can ask God. God's not afraid of one hard question in this room. God's not afraid of one doubt in this room. Doubt is not the enemy of faith, it's the cousin of it. The greater your doubts, the greater your questions, guess what? The greater your faith will be because as you develop your heart and your mind inside of the faith, it can take you to places that those who are just all emotional and surfacey can't ever go. I love the scriptures, not because they just read good. I love them because there's so much behind the literature when it mentions a city in the Bible. It's not a city that doesn't exist. You can go and escalate the geographical area of these cities, these regions, these people groups, and you can find these places and these people. They actually existed in real time, in real places. We could go on and on, but Thomas teaches us, it's okay if you have doubts. It's okay if you have questions. Nevertheless, even though he had his doubts, you can find Thomas, for example, when Lazarus had died and Jesus is wanting to go, and several days have passed by. The other disciples are warning Jesus, saying, We can't go, we can't go there. It's a trap, it's a setup. The Pharisees are waiting for us, they know that we're going to show up, and they're waiting to kill us. But it was Thomas who spoke up and said, Jesus, not only do I think you need to go, but I'm going to be right there by your side. And if they kill you, they're going to have to go through me first. I love Thomas because, yes, he had questions. Yes, he had doubts, but he knew how to stand by truth in the end. Next, we have John, the beloved. John is, of course, seated right next to Jesus because his name, his very name means the one whom Jehovah loves. John would be found as the closest of all the apostles to Jesus. The image that stands out the most to me about John is you find him in one place in the scripture where he lays his head on the chest of Jesus. The most important thing to John is to know the heart of God. He wants to know the heartbeat of God. I love John because when he writes of himself, he says, I am the disciple in whom Jesus loved it's one thing to say, God loves the world. It's one thing for, to say, God loves other people, but every now and then you have to make it personal. And John knew how to do that. I am the disciple in whom Jesus loved. I appreciate that. He loves you and he loves you and he loves them. And he loves those over there, but he loves me. I am the disciple in whom Jesus loved. John would be the one when all the other apostles deserted Jesus, when he was arrested John would be the one that would follow behind him. He'd be present at the trial. John would be present there at the cross because no matter how difficult it got for Jesus, John understood a brother is born for adversity. And John stood with Jesus Christ even at those horrific moments where he was savagely tortured and crucified. John not only stood with Jesus at the cross, But he was the first to build a church in Jerusalem. He built the first church in Asia. He built the first church in Ephesus as well. And it was all motivated out of his love for God and his revelation of God's love for him. Next, we have James the less, his name or his nickname. The less comes because of his, his stature. He was shorter and he was younger than the other apostles. And so they gave him the nickname James the less or James the little. I love this because it speaks to us about the areas in our life where we feel like we're less. The areas of our life where we feel like we're inadequate. The areas of our life where we feel like we don't measure up. I love the fact that Jesus chooses James the little. He chooses James the less than. He chooses the one that don't measure up to what the other apostles all look like or how they come off or how their life is together. James doesn't have those same natural qualities that the others have. And I love James because when you watch him, he proves that God doesn't need those things that the world say you have to have for you to be used significant. in a powerful way. You don't have to have those things. For example, Jesus would say all kinds of things about the little things. Like, Like he would say that all you have to do is have faith like a mustard seed. You don't need to have a lot of faith, just a little bit of faith. And it can move mountains. Jesus would say that the little coin that the woman had lost, she had a lot of coins, but the one that she had lost, she needed to move all the furniture, move everything, get out the flashlight, go to whatever extreme she had to, to find that one missing coin. And so Jesus built his kingdom, built the kingdom of God, not only on those who seem to be the great and the powerful, but he built his kingdom on James the less. This is not a millionaire. This is not someone with the Ivy League education. This is not someone with a famous name. This is not someone who was a world leader. This is someone that teaches us little as much when God is in it. I think the reason that God chooses these simple things of the world that confound the wise is because when someone sees God do something great through someone that other people have underestimated or other people have marginalized, it's that it's obvious that only God could have done that with that person. And the glory ends up ultimately going to God. I want you to think about in your own life, How often and how guilty we are at putting ourselves down. I don't know about you, but I'm my own worst critic. When I think about what I do right now, that I'm in front of you guys preaching, you know, the questions that I'm asking myself the whole time, all the questions I'm asking myself is is I think I, I didn't pronounce that word. Right. I didn't pronounce that one. Right. Uh, I, that was a run on sentence. That didn't make sense. Uh, that, you know, I was jumping from thought to thought. You can't connect, can't connect them. I'm up here thinking, are they noticing that I can't memorize this, that there's actually notes on all the plates of the apostles, (laughs) you know, I'm The whole time I'm, I'm, I'm up here, I, I think it's a joke because I look at people like the great orators, like the T.D. Jakes of the world and all these other powerful communicators and I'm like, I'm James the Less. I'm James the Less. But listen, at the end of the day, the whole point is, you know what? It doesn't matter the areas that I feel like I don't measure up or, or the areas you feel like you don't measure up, the areas you feel like you're inadequate or you feel sharp, short. See, there it is again. The areas you feel short. You, you, you just, just giving God your best and letting him take that and do something great with it. You don't have to have great abilities. You don't have to have incredible talents. You just have to be willing to be faithful with the little that God's given you and let him make much with it. Next, we have Thaddeus. Thaddeus is the one whose name in the Greek means great heart. He was the first disciple to be gripped with a global or a world vision. He was the first to look at the areas that they were traveling to locally and looking to those who were clo- those who were closest to Jesus. And yet he was unsatisfied with the reach of the gospel. And so he, in John chapter 14 said, as he's Looking at the other apostles, they're all gathered at the feet of Jesus, talking about miracles, talking about the blessings, uh, getting in depth teaching from the parables that Jesus had spoke. And as all of this is going on, he says, Lord, you've manifest yourself to us, but what about the rest of the world? In other words, he was someone that as he's being blessed, he in some ways feels guilty Because he's like, what about those who are outside of this moment, outside of this circle, outside of these four walls? What about those who are hurting? What about those who are are dying? And it was Thaddeus that had a burden for the whole world. It was Jesus that said to Thaddeus, Thaddeus, don't be too worked up. If any man loves me, my father will love him and come to him. I think Thaddeus speaks to us about our need to have a world vision. A global vision. When I think about the things that we're doing in Pakistan, the things we're doing in Indochina, the things that we're doing through church planning initiatives uh, around America, I think about just the idea we have to keep reminding ourselves that the gospel is for the whole world. Every nationality, every tongue, every tribe, all the unreached places of the world, all the unreached people. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their religion or their creed is. It doesn't matter what their, their ethnicity is. The gospel is for the whole world. And Thaddeus reminds us of that. Next, you have Nathaniel. Nathaniel is very interesting as far as the apostles go. He would be the one that Philip would introduce to Jesus. Nathaniel would be skeptical as Philip would walk him through the Old Testament prophets and talk to him about the Messiah. And then Philip would tell him that the Messiah is Jesus from Nazareth. It would be this apostle that Jesus would pay the highest compliment to of any of the apostles that he had initially met. He would tell Nathaniel, you, you are a man in whom there is no guile. An incredible compliment. One that struck the heart of Nathaniel because he knows that just the opposite is somewhat true because just moments before, as Philip was breaking down the scriptures with him, talking to him about Jesus, it was Nathaniel who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In other words, Nathaniel was guilty of guile. He's kind of guilty of believing that someone is their value and their worth is dependent on where they come from. But I love Nathaniel because he walks away from that encounter with Jesus. He walks away from that, that experience, that conversation and his life was forever changed. And after Jesus dies and is risen from the dead, it's Nathaniel that you find is, is passionately driven to go reach the smaller areas, the, the, the places others overlooked. He would go to the smaller villages. He wouldn't go to the, the metropolis areas. He wouldn't go to the place where thousands were. He would go to the place where dozens were, where no one else wanted to go. Nathaniel would go to those kind of areas. I love this because it teaches us that as much as I'm great, I'm grateful that we're here in Florence. I'm super thankful that we were willing to go into Anderson and set up in Anderson high school and turn a place of education into a sanctuary for God's presence to be and for places to hear people, to hear the gospel. It'd be so easy to not do it, would it not? It'd be so easy to quit reaching, to quit pushing, to quit going. I love the fact that not only that, but this year we'll be opening a new campus in a prison. Not, we're not gonna have a prison ministry. You'll have a church inside of a prison. So while we're having church in here, we'll be streaming and they'll be having church inside of a prison is willing to go into the places others have overlooked going into the places, the, the drug infested neighborhoods. I had a conversation this week with, with, um, an organization where the Lincoln Heights is a devastated area in Cincinnati. That's always struggled. They've never been able to turn that area. And we've been invited in by the leaders of that community to help bring some, some, uh, help and some healing. And we were in, they they could have invited anybody, but they invited you. Hey, would you come and help us with this area that for decades has been, they've been unable to turn it and clean it up, but they've invited us in this next season to come in and it's going to the places. Hey, it's, it's not Indian Hill. Come on. It's Lincoln Heights, but God loves those people. He cares for those people and being willing to go where other people maybe wouldn't. Is such a big value that Nathaniel teaches us. I love the fact that Nathaniel was also the one who Jesus said, Hey, before we met, I saw you underneath the fig tree, which means God knew us before we ever met him. God saw you way before you ever knew who he was. He saw you when you were wrapped up in sin, when you were living in darkness, when you are living in that addiction, where you are living in, in that, that you were in the club or you were just whatever, whatever you were doing, he knew you before he met you. He had his eye on you. He understands you. He knows where you come from. He knows where you've been. He knows everything about you. He's had his eye on you from the beginning. The Bible teaches us that next we have Peter. Peter, of course, the most famous of all the apostles. Peter, probably the most famous because he is so relatable. One minute, his faith is high. And the next minute, he's an utter failure. You see him walking on water one second. The next moment, he's watching the wind and he's sinking. You see him one minute saying, I'll never betray you. Moments later, he's not just betraying Jesus. He's betraying him with a curse. He's cutting cussing a little girl out who even suggests that he knows who Jesus is. Peter is... They're faithfully praying in the garden one moment, the next he's got a sword out and he's cutting the ear of the soldier off. I love Peter because though he had great revelations of who Jesus was, he teaches us, Hey, listen, all of us are going to sink. Sometimes all of us are going to maybe not be fully what we know that we should be. Sometimes we'll be pulling back when we should be pushing forward. Sometimes we'll be shrinking when we should be just saying, God, I'm I'm going all in. But yet God still chose Peter to be the rock of the new Testament church. He still chose Peter to be the one that would stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach the very first sermon of the early church and 3000 people would get saved and baptized. And I believe that the same way that Jesus used Peter, he uses all of us out there who sometimes feel like we're failures and sometimes feel like, man, God, you could never use me again after what I did. And, and you loved me and I failed you. And you love me again and I failed you again. And you love me and I keep, I keep missing it. I keep pulling back on you. But I believe Peter teaches us God can restore you and God loves you and he can use you powerfully even in spite of the areas that you keep messing up. In Jesus' name. Next, we have Simon the Zealot. Simon is the zealot or the passionate one. He's one that's got fire shut up in his bones. He's, he's the apostle that, that has an anger problem, he gets ticked too easy like some of you in the church parking lot that I run into every now and then. You're like Simon the Zealot. You act good in here, but you get out there and you're not, you're not right. And, but what Simon the Zealot teaches us is that God doesn't just need the John the Beloveds. He doesn't just need those who are humble and are less than. He doesn't just look for the the reasoning people and the thinking people. He looks for some people that that sometimes have that can get mad at the drop of a hat because sometimes when you look at the evil that exists in the world and you look at at the level of pain and destruction that the enemy is introducing to this generation and you look at what's going on and how more and more what's evil is called good and what's good is called evil and more and more it's going on and sometimes God doesn't need just the loving people and sometimes he doesn't just need the the, the thinking people sometimes he needs somebody that's got a little passion and can get enraged about some things and get mad at some things right and hate sin enough to stand up against it and i love the fact that God can take those emotions that maybe we think are raw. And, you know, why do I get so aggressive? Why do I get so mad? Because those are emotions that are God given. And if you'll, if you'll let him take those emotions and redeem them and channel them, you can actually make a major difference in our world, even though you're kind of someone that sometimes you feel like you get angry, angry easily. And then we have Judas. Judas Iscariot, the only apostle that would not be a Galilean, the only apostle that had an office before he was given the position that he had as an apostle. He was the money keeper of the apostles. And the Bible teaches us that sometimes he would help himself to the money. Judas had some issues. Jesus would be one that would give in to his impulses at times. Before we dig completely into Judas, I think one of the places that shows us the most about him is in the room when Mary, who is a prostitute, brings that alabaster box of expensive perfume worth one year's wages. She brings it and she breaks it at the feet of Jesus, saying that she's giving up her former life. She's bringing her most precious possession because this jar represented her professional identity. This perfume represented something she used in her previous occupation. But now she's interestingly enough, using it as a token of her faith. And when Jesus saw this moment that Mary would walk out of the shadow of her sin and the the shadow of this past life into God's wonderful light, Judas would see it instead of rejoicing and celebrating this this beautiful moment. He said, what she has done is waste.
1: Don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears.
0: So Judas speaks to us that it's very possible to be around Jesus, to be close to Jesus, to experience a lot of godly things and your heart. Be a million miles from him teaches us that that just because you're in the proximity of religious things does not necessarily mean that your heart's right. Judas might be the man that we always think of as the man that might have been the guy that could have been the man who let something as is, ridiculous as 30 pieces of silver cause him to live under such guilt and shame. He ultimately took his own life. And this is the moment that we're taking you back to the moment where Da Vinci is trying to capture This place where Jesus is hours before his death hours before he would die on a cross hours before that moment, all these different people from different backgrounds with different stories with different testimonies are all at this meal. And it's the last supper. It's the last time that they'll gather in the upper room. And it's his desire to let them know that he's about to go suffer and die. But before he says anything, before he goes any further, he wants them to know that one of you in our midst is not right. One of you here is not right. And he turns to them and he says, one of you will betray me. so when you look at the painting, this is the exact image that they captured this image around the moment of the one that would betray him. But I want you to focus in not just on the one who betrayed him, but I want us to focus in on the 11 who refused to betray him. We for example, would know Simon, the zealot was crucified just like Jesus. Nails through his hands, nails through his feet, a crown of thorns pushed onto his head because he refused to deny Jesus Christ. Even when it cost him his life, he was crucified by the governor of Syria in 74 AD. Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesotopia. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia, slain with a pickaxe, a long-handled iron weapon, they literally hacked him to death because he refused to deny and refused to stop preaching Jesus and stop preaching. He refused to stop preaching the glorious message of Jesus coming and to forgive the world of its sin. Philip in AD54, the proconsul of Heropolis had him tortured and crucified because his wife became a Christian listening to Philip preach the gospel. We would know Thomas excited the rage of a pagan priest while he was preaching in India. The priest pierced him while he was speaking through his back with a pine spear, tortured him after that with red hot plates and burned him alive. James the greater was thrust with a sword the first of the apostles to be martyred. John, the beloved, according to Fox's book of Martyrs, would be the only one that would escape death after he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, severely burned and banished to the island of Patmos. Then there was Judas who betrayed the Lord and hung himself. Peter, Nero sought to kill him because of the miracles that followed his ministry and because of his powerful preaching. They crucified Peter upside down with his feet up. And it's because he said, I quote, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. And his wife was crucified there with him. Many believe his children as well. Andrew was crucified at Odessa on a cross shaped like an X two ends deep into the ground. It's called St. Andrew's cross to this day for he died for his faith in Jesus Christ. James, the less was thrown off a Southeast pinnacle in the temple in Jerusalem. After surviving a hundred foot fall, a mob came and clubbed him to death. Nathaniel was flogged to death in Armenia. And of course the most important person for us to focus in on is Jesus and how he would die for our sins, how he would be horribly beaten. And suffer by death on the cross for our sins. And then three days later, they would take or they took Jesus. They buried him in a tomb. And then three days later, we read about it earlier in John chapter 20. They showed up at this tomb. And when they went on the inside, Peter saw his grave clothes. In one area of the tomb. And then he saw a napkin that was neatly folded off to the side. And the real message of the last supper is not the betrayal of Judas. The real message of the last supper is found in this neatly folded napkin in the tomb. You see in Jewish culture, whenever you had a meal in those times, you would finish the meal. And if you enjoyed the meal, if you liked the meal, you would take your time in a dramatic way. You would fold the napkin neatly. You would press it and then you had set it on the table and that was your way of telling the host, I enjoyed the meal and I'm coming back again. I enjoyed the meal and I'll be back. And so when Simon Peter walked into the tomb and he saw that napkin fold, neatly folded in the tomb, the message was clear. I enjoyed my time here and I'm coming back. I'll be back again. And as God's people, we need to remember that he did come. He, he did. He was here. He walked the earth. He lived a sinless life. He, he died on a horrible cross for us. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. We're going to celebrate that, but let's not forget. He's coming back again. And our job is to not die for him. 176,000 people a year to this day die because they refuse to deny Jesus Christ. Almost 80 million people around the globe have given their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's not asking us to die for him today, but he is asking, will we live for him? Will we be faithful in the midst of trials and difficulty and hesitations and mess ups and mistakes? Will Will we be willing to prepare our hearts? for the fact that we should live every day saying he's coming back again. And I need to live my life in a manner that's worthy of when he comes back, I'll be ready for it. So every eye closed, every head bowed, maybe you're here today, or maybe you're watching online or there in Anderson. And you say, Marcus, if Jesus were to split the Eastern sky and come back, I'm not ready. And whether that ever happens in our lifetime or not is not the point. The point is at some point we stand before God. No one's going to be there to answer for your life. Just you and Jesus, just you and him. And the apostles show us that God's not interested in our perfection. He's not interested in, do we have it all together? But he's also not impressed by our proximity to religious things. He wants to know. He's asking. Think about King Agrippa, who would say, You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. I think about other places where, like Pilate, when they said, What do you want us to do with Jesus? And Pilate just washed his hands and said, Let somebody else deal with it. Just such an important question. What do you want us to do with Jesus? And Pilate just washed his hands and walked away. Think about another place in the scripture. Someone says, I'll do it at a more convenient time. Just now is not the time I got other things that are pressing. Just not right now. There's always a more convenient time, isn't there? But I believe you're here today on Palm weekend on Palm Sunday. And I believe you're here on purpose. And I believe you're here to have heard this message because God is not done with you. He's not finished with you. He's got a great future for you. But every now and then you have to come to that place and say, man, am I really living for him? If you've been watching this message, listening to this message and you're saying, Marcus, Jesus is not the Lord of my life. I'm not saved. I'm not right with God. I'm not born again. I've not put my trust in Christ. I've not put my faith in Christ. I've not surrendered my life to him. I'm not talking about church. I'm saying, have you given, have you surrendered all to him? if you're here and you'd say, Marcus, I've not done that, but today I want to, I want to get right with God. I want to be at peace with God. I need forgiveness. I need a new beginning. I need a new start. And you want me to pray for you on the count of three. I'm going to invite you to lift your hand. If they're in Anderson, I'm going to invite you to lift your hand. People always say, why do you want me to lift my hand? I believe it's you saying yes. And I think that moment of faith, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. When you lift your hand, you're just saying, yes, that's your faith. God's grace is powerful enough to meet you. You have to take that moment of faith, that, that measure of faith that God's given to every one of us and you have to say, yes, yes, today is the day I'm gonna surrender all. I'm giving my life to him. I'm not living the way I've been living anymore. God, I'm coming to you today. Today is my day. Right now is my moment to get right with God. If that's you on the count of three, lift your hand as high as you can all over this room. There in Anderson, those watching online, on the count of three: one two, three, lift that hand up as high as you can. God bless you. God bless you. Keep it raised. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I love watching couples get right with God over there. Thank you, ma'am up there. I see that hand. Thank you. Come on, just say yes to him. What are you saying? Yes to you're saying yes to Jesus. You're saying yes to forgiveness. You're saying yes to being cleansed and washed and forgiven Darren Anderson, lift that hand, lift that hand unashamedly. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in front of men, I'll be ashamed of you in front of my father. And it's just a simple way of saying there should never be anything that keeps you from saying yes to him. Don't worry about what people think. Worry about what God thinks. And this is a moment between you and him. Say yes to him with that hand lifted. A friend of mine is going to try to get a card to you. I want you to, they're in Anderson. If you're watching online, there's a place that you can push the button, raise your hand or put in a, an emo, a prayer emoji or something like that. And we're going to help you as well. But that card is going to help you take some next steps. You're going to be able to go out to the welcome area. They've got a gift for you out there. They're going to help you know of a small group. You can get into that will help you in your walk with God. Let's all put our hands on our hearts. Let's pray with those who've lifted their hands there in Anderson. Let's pray this out loud together, all together. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying on a cross for shedding your blood for me, for my sin. Say, I am the disciple in whom Jesus loves. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for a fresh start and a new beginning. Jesus, I believe That you're God's only son and that he raised you from the dead. And now I put my full, come on. See, now I put my full confidence in you in Jesus name. We all said, amen.